Welcome to Mintel Little Conversation, real conversations with actionable insights into what consumers want and why. My name is Alicia Young, and I'm the Associate Director of Consumer Trends for the APAC region. I'm based in Sydney, and I'm really looking forward to today's topic, not least of which because we've got some excellent guests lined up. It's been true for some time that Asia is home to some of the world's fastest growing economies. Uh, We're seeing some rapid economic development giving rise to a burgeoning middle class with disposable income and a new appetite for, well, an emerging, well, not emerging, and a continuing appetite for a range of products and services, including food and drink products. The Asia region is home to 60% of the world's population, so it is pretty massive, and that is a lot of mouths to feed. And Tastes are changing and evolving as influences from around the world set new expectations for consumers, with health being a really big one of those. Today, we're going to take a look at what Asian consumers are looking for when they're shopping for food and drink, keeping in mind, of course, the huge diversity of the region. And joining me is Mintel's Shelley McMillan. And from Food Industry Asia, we have Sabira Ali. Would you mind introducing yourselves? Thanks, Alicia. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I'm Shelley. I head up the consulting team across the South APAC region, which includes a huge diversity of markets, including India, Southeast Asia, and across Australia and New Zealand. I'm based in Sydney, um, but really excited to be here and to discuss this really interesting topic. Thanks so much, Alicia. And hi, Shelley. Um, My name is Sabira Ali. I actually uh, work for Food Industry Asia. We are a trade organization based out, headquartered in Singapore, but we have a very regional base. Um, I head up the public affairs department with Food Industry Asia, and it's a pleasure to be here today. So thank you so much for having us. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, I'm excited for this topic because of the breadth of opportunity available to food and drink brands right now. Um, It really feels like consumers around Asia have this adventurousness and this insatiable curiosity around food and drink. I know for so many countries and even for so many of my friends you know, living in Singapore, living in all these different places, going and eating is their number one hobby. It's what they, yeah. it's how they spend their time. They are obsessed with food, right? And I think that makes it really exciting. Um, today we're focusing on one major aspect of that food and drink journey, which is health. So I guess a big question to start how are consumers in Asia feeling about their overall health? Um, and to what extent does food and drink play a role in that perception of personal health? You know, as you said, Alicia, um, food is something that everyone resonates with and it's a very powerful tool. So it stirs up all sorts of different types of feelings and it has the power to, you know, improve moods and things like that. So when we, when we look at, um, you know, how consumers in Asia feel about their overall health and how food and drink plays a part in it. It's it's quite obvious that um, they've become more conscious of their health, both from a physical and mental perspective. Um, and given that the pandemic, you know, well, basically lasted three years and it's probably lingering around a little bit, um, that has definitely changed how consumers actually view food. Um, it's It's not just about you know, indulging from time to time, but it's also about, you know, ensuring that those food and drinks actually have got some kind of a health benefit. It could be in the form of a mood boosting um, perspective. It could be even something as simple as, yeah, I don't feel too good. I just need, I'm looking for some kind of comfort. And then you go for some kind of an indulgent type of a treat. I do that myself. Definitely. So, and, and, and snacking is something that I see that is growing is, is definitely on the rise. And um, especially with the pandemic dying down right now, um, more and more people have turned to snacking in order to feed their levels of stress. Um, and I'll let Shelley take it away with some kind of a data to back that up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so I, certainly, I, I think you've mentioned so much diversity in terms of consumers' relationship with food. I, I think um, we talk about health in a very broad term, but I think, Sabira, you've mentioned a couple of different aspects of that in terms of mental health and that very much is connected with indulgence and luxury experience all of those different elements at the same time you've got more of those functional elements in terms of nourishment in terms of vitamin and mineral um, etc so it it is such a diversity in terms of people's relationship with food and, and how it relates to health which 
makes a really good topic for discussion and lots of things we can get into. Yeah. So I guess from that, what does a healthy diet, you know, it looks different to different people, obviously, Um, broadly across consumers in Asia, what does a healthy diet look like? And perhaps how has that shifted? Yeah, so I'll I'll take a stab at this one. I think um, as we see in many other markets, people look at things that are going to add things to their diet. So um, pluses, we would call them. And then we have things that are people are looking for minuses or detractors. So things that are tr- they're trying to remove from their diet or, or lessen from their diet. And I would say that mentality is very typical of what we're seeing across many Asian markets and, and likely to see what we're across many other countries. But it's all the typical things that you would expect. So they're looking for things like more fruit and vegetables, more vitamins and minerals, um, more fiber. So all those things that add positive nutrition elements to their diet. At the same time, you know, in those detractors, we're looking for things that are uh, uh, actively looking to reduce. So things like lower in sugar or no sugar, salt, um, fat, those sort of elements. And that's very much the mentality of how people are looking at food from a very broad spectrum perspective. And that was really seen um, in some of the research that we've done with FIA. Let me, let me just add in a little bit more of an industry perspective to it. And I think Shelley has taken a really nice, um, given you guys an overview of what consumers are really looking for. And I would say this is not just specific to Asia, but it can be um, adapted for the global scale as well. Um, I mean, look, at the end of the day, there is a lot of an awareness coming up with regards to having balanced nutrition um, in order to maintain good health. And I think from an industry standpoint, we follow closely with what consumers are looking for so that um, the new products that you see in the market or even the revised products of sorts, reformulated products, um, definitely take into consideration what consumers are looking for, you know reducing the sugar, fat and salt, um, even looking into adding more of the, like you said, the pluses, fiber, vitamins, minerals and so on. So I think that falls within what we call the better for you portfolio, which is a term that's not just familiar to the industry folk, but also the consumers are quite aware of it. And, you know, with, with Food Industry Asia or FIA, we actually carried out a series of studies in the last few years. We wanted to understand um, how consumers were seeing the idea of products being reformulated or, you know, revamped to suit their needs a little bit better. So at the, what we realized was that at least about eight in 10 consumers in Asia, this is including um we look at ASEAN, India, and China, um, they're definitely very receptive towards um, re- reformulated products. But the, the caveat is this, right? At the end of the day, you can reformulate all you want, but I want the taste to be maintained. Yeah, and that's pretty absolutely. much the gold standard. It's the cash. It is. <laughs> and, and it's honestly, from an industry standpoint, that's not as easy as it sounds. It's super challenging, I think, to say the least. And um, let me give you an example, right? Like, We have lots of snack brands, big and small, that are trying to embrace this whole better for you portfolio. Um, If I were to look at, say, for example, the Thai consumer base, um, we can say that about four in 10 of these consumers are looking for snacks that feeds the indulgent, but also comes with the benefits of, you know, maybe fortified with vitamins and minerals, prebiotics and calcium. And there are products like that that is out there. And most companies in, in India, China and ASEAN have already embarked on their journeys of reformulating their products or have plans in the pipeline. And what we can say is that having that process started, we can see that, you know, when we look from a FMB um, sector perspective, sugar and salt reduction is definitely top of mind. Because when we talk about health, these are the two, I guess, ingredients and nutrients that kind of catches the attention of many. And it's also of priority for the governments um, in the markets as well. And this is not just specific to Asia. And I think at the end of the day, it goes back to doing it in a way that consumers can accept. So we call this approach the health by stealth approach. Um, And it's just doing it in this small little nudges um, in order to make that change without even the consumers realizing it. And I think that's the beauty in it. But also sometimes that's where the real challenge is. Yeah, and, and I think you raised a really good point, Sabira, that companies and brands need to plan for this. Um, 
that planning aspect, you know, having a goal in mind in terms of some key nutritional aspects that you're trying to aim for, whether that's part of a local government regulation or not. Um, but having that plan in terms of that, like, you know, over time reducing the amount of salt or sugar to allow consumers' palates to adjust to it. Um, I've certainly been involved in my time in a couple of these projects, and they do take a lot of work, both from an R&D, from a packaging perspective. You know, there's a lot of work that goes in behind it, but ultimately, if we think about it from a consumer perspective, it's aligned with their goals. It's aligned with government goals in terms of reducing uh, some of those public health challenges that come with many of these uh, aspects. And ultimately, it's good for the industry, which is kind of what we've been talking about in terms of how do we ensure that the industry is keeping up with those health trends as well. No, you're right. And and I think even before we go into the consumer um, part of, you know, making them accept the new product, I think getting that internal alignment within the company itself, getting them aligned to say, this is a cost that we're working towards and going for together, that in itself is something that it needs to be communicated clearly, and then you take on the next um, the next step towards the consumers. I think to to your point about you know having that, um, if I, if I can share an example of uh, how consumers accept the new changes to the products, I think uh, there's this there's this product um, that I actually consumed as a young kid, um, Arnott's um, Shapes. No, no, uh, well. that's <laughs> It's a really famous Australian brand, food brand, right? Um, so what I wanted to share was that, you know, uh, they they actually uh, listened to what consumers were looking for, which is something that's healthier, but still kept to the same taste. Mm. And this happened sometime around in 2016, if I recall correctly. Um, so they said that, you know what, I'm going away. I'm going to work on this healthier alternative. Uh, we'll come back to you. And uh, when they did come back, um, when, when the new product hit, hit the shelf, definitely had a healthier health star rating to it. Consumers bought it off the shelf and they kind of went, yeah, no, bring it back. Bring back the original version for me because I do not like what I'm eating. And I think one of the ways to kind of overcome that is, I guess, extending the range and not just, you know, replacing the original flavors or the classic flavors, which is legacy to a certain brand. But it's also just you know, coming up with newer versions that might feed into the wider target audience and not just not hurting your fan base, I would say. They had to bring back the original flavor, which, you know, most consumers actually enjoy. So I guess that's the learning lesson for us to take. Yeah, and we've seen some great examples of brands who I think have successfully done that, um, whether it's through technology. So airbag technology, we're seeing a lot of use of airbaked um, to reduce the amount of fat, but also has really healthy connotations as well as delivering to the actual product delivery in terms of that crunch. It still delivers all of those sensory aspects, which are, are really important. So, yeah, there's there's some great examples out there. I know Mintel showcases those examples a lot on our platform. Um, so definitely um, there's some great ways to think about it. I, I think um, I certainly have been involved in some of those uh, longer-term salt and sugar reductions. When I was when I worked in marketing, we actually every six months reduced the amount of salt by a very, very small amount, very, very small amount, so that um, over time consumers' palates would adjust and we would be able to hit some um, lower sodium targets. That was going to be my question to you, actually. How long does that process take? It's got to be incremental, right? Like it's going to be barely perceptible. Yeah, just like like small, small changes over time, um, especially, you know, Sabira, like you mentioned with the Shapes product, people are uh, eating these quite regularly. They've got a real, um, they're often very much connected with that indulgence. So taste and flavor is really important. So doing that in very small increments over time is is really important. So, you know, great example of, I think, where it works and where it doesn't work, I think. But there are lots of ways to, to definitely think about it. Yeah, and it's also about having that concept be a little bit more understood, both internally within the organization with the consumers, as well as with, in my, you know, in my um, line of work, speaking with regulators and policymakers, you know, that companies are actually doing the, the needful and they do require a specific time frame to work with in order to actually get that sustainable outcome in order to address whatever public public health challenges that we are facing today, largely, you know, obesity and other related disease, diseases. So it, it does take time and I'm, we are all guilty of it. 
you know, when we go to a store, have something that we think that we know, and we don't like the change anymore. I mean, at the end of the day, if you purchase a box of shapes, you're buying it because of the taste, aren't you? You're buying it because that's what you mm. want it for. You're 100% right. I think at the end of the day, from my background, you can eat all of the healthy foods that you like. But if you overconsume something, that's still going to give you a potential negative implication. And I think the, the takeaway for all of us is that you can enjoy the little treats alongside some of the healthier food products. There's so many things, so many ways to enjoy and incorporate these little items into your diets. And you don't really have to ignore your indulgent treats like for instance shapes or even coca-cola who has done a fantastic job in coming up with versions of diet versions of its beverage without even realizing that when you when you compare the classic coke to maybe a dietary version of it they really come close to each other you can't sometimes can't even tell the difference so that took many many years and many many iterations you know so i guess that's what's important and i would say learning for all of us yeah, I, I actually I wanted to bring up that Coke example again because I think um, in some markets they've actually included low-calorie natural sweeteners in their r- regular versions as well, um, which I think is a really interesting move from them. Partly, I know it's driven by regulations and things like, um, I know in Thailand they've got a really um, well-thought-out sugar strategy and communication on pack, same in some markets like Australia. Um, but they're actually starting to complement high-calorie sugars with more low-calorie natural sweeteners as well, even in those non-diet versions. So I think it's those types of indications that we're seeing from big brands who uh, in some ways are taking the lead in this area um, of what where the future will go. I couldn't agree more. And I'm glad you actually brought up that example of Thailand, actually, because I think that speaks to how um, the governments have listened to the concept of actually taking on a bit of a tiered approach, taking some time to reduce the sugars and adding new ingredients to be able to um, fill the gaps where you will. And it addresses the industry concern. But also at the same time, Thailand is a market where, you know, you're your weather is really hot. People always look to cold beverages more often than not. And these guys go for sweet drinks as a way to quench their test. And it's definitely going to take that time and step to do so. And I think Thailand has done a great job um, in, in, in actually working together with the industry to be able to deliver results, even though it was through some regulation that is in place amongst other markets. UK is another example too. Yeah. I think um, we, we've certainly seen that in our global new product database, the reduction of sugar in carbonated soft drinks in Thailand has just been, it's just been remarkable. Year on year, they're reducing their average sugar per 100 mils. Um, And if we compare it to markets that are neighboring and um, similar in many ways, they're significantly different in terms of the the makeup of that category. So yeah, definitely a a one to, to, to look at as a best in class, I would say. Yeah, certainly. Now I want to talk about the the pluses, about adding things back. You mentioned earlier that, you know, fortifying and, and adding different elements in, um, that's, that's what consumers are also looking for, these added benefits. The research that we see indicates that there are certain benefits or claims that are resonating with consumers, but efficacy can be a bit of a challenge here. Um, are consumers believing what they're seeing on pack? Can I, can I kick off with this one? Because it's one of my favorite yeah, questions please. to answer. <laughs> let, me, let me speak to, as someone with a nutrition background, going to the grocery store and looking at the package and kind of going like, yeah, that's too much information for me. And then I just grab what I want. That's one side of it. On the flip side, you kind of like, okay, you know, what? I'm going to take my time to understand what are the different, say, ingredients, what are the um, health benefits, for instance, in a product that is out there. And I kind of stand there and kind of go, yeah, okay, so that's, that takes a lot of time. So that's just, you know, a real life example of what I just wanted to share. But that being said, coming back to consumers in Asia, um, you know what? Uh, people look to the information that is on food and drink quite um, 
quite well, I would say. I w- um, even though sometimes when we do or collect this consumer data, there is a certain percentage of overclaiming here because it's self-reported. Uh, we can say that roughly about two in three consumers actually look out for information relating to um, sugar, energy, even the presence of vitamins and minerals, protein quite regularly. Um, and and obviously, I'm saying it from a broad Asia perspective, but when you zoom into a country level uh, perspective, this obviously varies from market to market. For example, Singapore, um, the government uh, actually announced this whole war on diabetes a few years ago. And because of that, sugar has definitely been top of mind for a lot of the consumers um, in Singapore. So sugar is an, is, is an ingredient that uh, people look to. Um, on the food and drink packages over here. And recently in December, they came up with a new labeling scheme, which is called the Nutrigrade label, which is essentially um, grading a beverage based on the sugar and saturated fat levels and um, associating them with a grade and a color. So if let's say you have more than... Mm, I recall correctly, more than 6% uh, sugar or 10% sugar, your beverage would be uh, per 100 mils, your beverage would fall under the C or D category. So again, goes back to why sugar is top of mind to the consumer. I think that speaks to um, the awareness that is being raised through campaigns and whatsoever to explain that concept. Um, so people do look to nutrition information and the information uh, the health claims or nutrition claims that is on packs quite regularly well this is one side of the update i guess there's also a majority of the consumers that kind of go yeah to to the point that i made earlier um there's all this information out there which one do i take away and even again i think we are all quite familiar with the food and drink landscape because of what we do we get confused if I can, if I can speak for all of us, I think you you've, you've kind of touched on it a couple of times, Sabira. But just it's a good it's a good sense check for us as researchers uh, to really, when we're thinking about these big questions, to actually think about how we behave as a person ourselves, because it's often, um, you know, when we're looking at, at results and we're looking at and um, data. Just to sort of give you that um, reality check of what consumers are really like in in the moment when they're making those decisions. Um, there's, like you said, a huge amount of information. Who do you trust? Um, you've got a lot of emotions playing out, especially when you're at that point of purchase. Um, so there's a lot of things that consumers have to navigate. Uh, and there's lots of things that we can do to make it easier for them to make the right choice. Um, and I know we've talked about a lot about that in the last couple of moments, but I, I just wanted to remind ourselves that simplicity is so important. Uh, I, I think out of all the research we've done in the last couple of years, um, particularly looking at food and drink labeling, I think simplicity and clarity of message is so important. And, and if I can add to that, it's also about alignment, not just, you know, to help the consumer understand because of the vast amount of info that's out there that keeps changing from time to time, having that alignment coming from, you know, the government speak, the industry speak to be able to ultimately, to your point, get that messaging out there clearly as simply in a way that resonates with the consumer. I think if I were to look at the level of trust amongst the consumers uh, towards the food food and drink industry, but also um, at the government, they are not very different. Consumers in Asia have a good level of trust amongst the government, uh, the information that they are getting from the governments, but also the pack, the information that they see on packs coming from the food and drink um, industry. And this is actually quite apparent in the data that we collected um, in partnership with you guys, was that um, governments in Asia, the level of trust is roughly at about 65%. And um, consumers actually look to food and beverage companies to get that information and, and, and have that level of trust I think it was 59%, almost six in 10 people. So it's not very different. Yeah. And mm, I think yeah. it's just leveraging on what we already know and, and being able to deliver it in a way, be it through social media, be it through, you know, TikToks, or for, for example, um, can actually read reach a wider consumer base at a faster rate. Um, and 
I think one of the most important points that I missed out, and and when Shelley was speaking, it kind of hit me, was that besides taste, besides familiarity of a certain brand, price is really, really important. And sometimes in some markets, that stands at the top priority when it comes to purchasing food and drink. And thereafter would be taste, then the quality of brand familiarity, and then nutrition. So sometimes price takes top of mind and we are living in a really expensive environment as we speak you know inflation rates run high so that's something to consider as well that's a really good point can consumers you know when they see all these added benefits are they computing that as more money am i paying extra for these items so that's Mm. they're weighing that up in their value equation as well and if if, if you were to ask them they would tell you um I want healthier, but I also want it at the same price point. Oh, yes. Yeah. They want everything. Give yeah. <laughs> uh, the world. I mean, I know we've talked at Mintel a lot about how to deliver value. It's been a real hot topic in the last six months with in Asia, but also in other markets, you know, cost of living crisis. People are having more and more of a spotlight on, am I getting the best value from my products? Um, but I wanted to segue a little bit into sustainability because I think that top that tension that you mentioned around you know the willingness to pay that providing value is, element yeah and, and I, we, we did in this study and, and again at, at Mintel we, we look a lot into sustainability um, it's a very interesting topic in Asia um, we get lots of questions from from clients and we looked into it in this research which is first of all do Asian consumers care about sustainability, first question. Uh, and then, you know, is it the same? Are we expecting the trends to behave in the same way as we're seeing in Western markets? I would say those two questions are the biggest questions we get. Um, and we delved into many of those aspects in the study we worked with um, FIA on. Um, and there were some really interesting results, some of which I think were a bit surprising. Yeah. Oh, some surprising. <laughs> Don't leave us on this cliffhanger. Shall we? Oh, <laughs> I think uh, the way we ask the questions, we tried to actually um, elicit a little bit further than just whether or not they would do something. But we gave them a bit of a scenario to um, ex- to basically assess and see whether or not they will actually do what they say that they would do. Um, I think, look, sustainability is this whole trend that is what is kind of like sweeping our minds right now. And I think consumers in, in reality actually do see that whatever food and drink choices that they are making or even outside of food and drink, their actions actually has an impact on the environment. And I think um, part of the data that we collected actually showed that over 7 in 10 consumers um, knew, are aware that their food and drink choices has a moderate to significant impact on the environment. They are aware that their actions has an impact on the environment, but when we asked them, you know, do you actually do anything um, to, to, to change that? Only less than half actually said they assessed the, the environment, environmental impact of a food and beverage product before they purchase it. So I guess awareness and actions, they're quite separate to one another. And if I could, if I could add on in terms of the willingness to pay more, um, yeah, they say, yeah, I would be willing to pay more to be more sustainable. But also they point to cost being a reason as to why they can't actually make sustainable food so food choices. So it's a little bit of a, you know, which what? is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, and then there's also the lack of availability or the lack of knowledge on how their actions would actually have an impact. Yeah. No, I, I, I personally think that that's actually the biggest, a bigger and more achievable barrier. And, and I think an opportunity for food and drink brands to play a more active role. Um, so I think there's, first of all, it's about education. And I think there's a great platform for food and drink brands and, and many markets who are doing really well at, at educating consumers around this, um, but also making it easy. Um, so one of the initiatives that I think has worked really well in some markets, and I think um, other markets can definitely learn on from, is around communication of recyclability. So, um, in in markets where I think good infrastructure, um, and again the diversity of, of what so we're seeing in Asia one. is, 
Yeah, it is hard. It is hard. You've got some markets which have very developed infrastructure in terms of recycling. Others are getting better. Like I know in China, there's a lot of investment from the government in terms of recycling infrastructure. Um, But in other markets, Philippines, for example, there's not much infrastructure to support consumers in their recyclability. Um, In those spaces, though, we've seen in the Philippines, brands are actually taking it on themselves. And I think that's really exciting I would say opportunity even for brands to be the the face of sustainability. I know that's a really big, obviously, investment and a big position to take, but the value that that provides consumers and themselves is immense. And and I think I would it, it, you you've kind of hit the nail on the head there as well because consumers are looking to food and drink brands to give them uh, uh, an easy way out to act a bit more sustainability and by that it could be in the form of their food products being packaged in a sustainable manner and having those companies inform them of that change and how that product is more sustainable definitely is one of the I guess easier ways to resonate again to reach out to the consumer to address you know how companies are now taking action even though you know sometimes in the case of philippines for example the infrastructure is not quite there yet i guess singapore you can say is another example because we don't have the i guess um we're not blessed with a lot of space so we're just trying to figure (laughs) out how um how that infrastructure will be built to facilitate recycling to facilitate a, a bit more circularity and 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 drive that sustainable um, environment in our markets. Not to say that Singapore is not doing anything, but it's just another added consideration to make. But companies, on the other hand, can actually take actions like you know changing a little bit of their packaging. And I think Mondelez has done a great job. Um, so mm. they actually um, came up with this. You know how there are these chocolate uh, boxes that that goes around during Christmas and Thanksgiving and things like that, right? So it comes in this. Um, they call it the high impact polystyrene which basically you know has all the different types of chocolates in that tray and then they they give it it looks really pretty um what they had done was they had actually changed that plastic material to rpat recycled pet materials they've changed the color from black trays to purple trays to be able to actually identify it in the sorting facility when it comes back to them and there you go they're delivering that recyclability in that way where consumers are not involved, they're doing it out of their own um, will because they have a certain goal to hit as a company, as a business, to be more sustainable. And that's working well for them. I was just going to say, you know what I really like about that is that consumers pick up that now purple tray and they know that they are doing something tangible and something different. Mm. And I think it's that tangibility aspect that's so important for consumers. They need to know that, you know, sustainability like paying more for sustainability in a an an intangible sense perhaps that's not really what they want to be doing but i think and what we've seen in the data is that they will choose to do it when they know what it is that they are contributing to not this Mm. vague sense of of environmentally friendly yeah i i wanted to call out another example that i've seen um across the region so uh tetra pack they obviously are a packaging producer um generally not recyclable in most um, countries in terms of the local government. So what they've actually done in some markets is they've actually created their own secondary, um, I suppose, selling, they're actually using the packaging to create uh, building materials. So it helped to set up um, companies, social enterprises, that help to use the packaging as a secondary um material and using it to help produce housing uh, for affordable housing options. So I, I think that's a good example, a tangible example of where a company who has you know, pretty high ambitions in terms of their sustainability efforts, who are finding really creative solutions to do it in markets where perhaps it's not set up for them in, in the way that they would normally do it. Um, and I like this idea because it also helps to employ people as well and create social housing. So I thought I thought it was a really good example. I just love the opportunities that arise when you get really creative. And I think that's a perfect yeah. example of the value that you can give back to communities and the technology that we have available now. Like there are new technologies coming out all the time that allow us to turn recyclables into 
bricks, for example, to build housing. I think there's just, you know, we don't need to stick to the traditional roots of turning bottles back into bottles. We can be so much more creative than that. Um, okay, we've gone off on a huge tangent as far as sustainability, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> but just to bring it back to, to health for a moment or to, to, to food uh, habits in general, Sabiri, you mentioned snacking earlier. Um, and how consumers are, are snacking a lot more or grazing more throughout the day that their eating habits have changed a little bit. We've seen snacking broadly um, really emerge as a, a food and drink trend, uh, especially over the few year, last few years, sorry, with COVID, um, working from home, you know, there's less of a traditional kind of breakfast, dinner, lunch in whatever order you might choose to eat them in. Um so what are consumers looking for when they snack? You know, are they looking for those healthy options or are they going that bit more indulgent? I think health is healthy healthier treats is definitely one aspect of it. That doesn't mean to say that indulgent treats are completely chucked. No. Um, I think like you said, the preferences um, in Asia has, has evolved over many, many years. And with COVID hitting us, um, that definitely has kind of, you know, lifted the lid on wanting more healthier and more nutritious snacks to be readily available. But I think to add to that, when we talk about snacks, we talk about, you know, the, the convenience, the, the fact that it's portable and accessible anywhere. And um, that definitely is one of the key aspects that is of priority to the consumer when it comes to snacking, the convenience, the, the, the accessibility and availability of it. Secondly, it's about, you know, having that healthy snacking options, um, incorporating things like natural ingredients, um, you know, sometimes it can even be locally or sustainably sourced. And I, and I know that we went off tangent. I'm not going to talk about sustainability here, but, but that, <laughs> I always love to talk about sustainability. <laughs> it's always an interesting one, right? So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, those type of ingredients that, that making that, making that um, known to the consumer alongside, you know, reduced sugar, functional benefits in terms of, say, you know, this snack has got added probiotics, it's added, you know, has more fiber, vitamins and minerals. The fact that, you know, it can even be as simple as energy boosting definitely sits well with the consumer. Um, we, we also see that because snacking is so huge and it's something that feeds to the tendencies of dealing with stress to be, you know, um, something that helps you boost your mood, uh, mood. you know, it helps um, give you a bit of comfort. And because you're stressed, you eat less regularly. So maybe these snacking presents an opportunity to kind of make yourself feel satiated throughout the day, having those meals in in, uh, in smaller bite-sized portions. And I guess companies are taking actions to, to deliver that as well through, you know, um, conveying the concept of mindful eating, conveying it in, in smaller packages and, and naming it really creatively, like, you know, gourmet sized or you know try this uh fun size um whatever snacks if you will and i think on a personal level if i were to i think this also adds to the fact that you know having that um access to um that the economical access sometimes smaller portions definitely helps you um I guess, like ration out your food a little bit better rather than buying mm. one big bag, even though that is value for money um, and just gorging it in one seating because you, you, you tend not to know how much is too much or how much is too little. So I guess that portioning option definitely helps and a little goes, goes a long way, but smaller packaging isn't the only option to do that. I think um, if I can just maybe sit share a little bit more of like how the downsizing um, works in the industry. Um, a couple of examples is, you know, elongating your packaging size. So you reduce the volume, you elongate the packaging. It looks like you're having more, but actually you're eating less or you're consuming less. But that, again, this can go into the, the, the whole argument of, so you've been trying to trade me off 
by making me pay Is more for lesser. Mm. No. Yeah. So that's the thing, right? So sometimes that's mm. why it's very um, important for the con- uh, for the industry to explain that to the consumer to be transparent. It's a new packaging. Um, you know, it comes in smaller portions. Like take, again, um, some beverage companies actually revamp their, um, the volumes that you see in cans from the rounded um, cans to slump something that's slightly longer and slimmer or shorter and slimmer uh, and yeah. to be honest I find that very aesthetic it's really nice it, it fits really good. yeah it fits yeah. really nicely in your hands so that's just one example apart from you know coming up with um, smaller portioning or even product partitioning they call it you can take for example your Toblerons or your Cadbury's and things like that the way they partition the the, the chocolate bars for example has an impact on how you view it that you might, you're getting more bang for the buck or not. These are some mechanisms to help, um, you know, address the whole concept of mindful eating to be able to deliver healthier um, options to the consumer with a variety of ways. There's many ways to do it. There's no right and wrong. And the mental part is, is part of it, right? If people think that they're eating less, they're going to finish it and be like, well, I'm still hungry. Yeah. But if they think they've had just as much, they feel quite satiated. 100%, yeah. Yeah, I, I I think the other thing that is quite interesting to add into there is is price. So um, one of the key mechanics um, of those smaller packs is hitting key price points, um, particularly you know with snacking where it's often an unplanned purchase, um, making people feel good about that purchase from a pocket. A, out-of-pocket perspective is also really important. So, um, you know, developing product concepts that are designed to hit specific price points is is actually a really big strategy in Asia across the market. We see it across many different categories, um, particularly in markets where we've got, you know, lower GDP, where people's incomes are not as high. Having those particular price points are really important um, to really get to that bigger group of consumers I agree with that. And I think that's, like you said, it being one of the strategies is to extend that range, not just providing that smaller, um, the access to smaller packaging, but making that available in a small, medium, large. And and again, that's just the generalization so that consumers have that choice to make. So that also comes with a bit of education and, and awareness building that in itself takes time. So we've spoken a lot about health choices um, and how they are, you know, there's, there's so many different elements that we can bring in to change the foods that we're eating to make them more healthy. One last question that I have is about age groups. Have we seen, you know, are, are people eating differently across different age groups? They're looking for different healthy items. Um, are younger people looking for, I don't know, extra focus and extra vitamins compared to older consumers looking for natural? Like, what have we seen there? So I'm going to make some big generalizations, which obviously have a massive amount of caveats, <laughs> which we can definitely dive into. Afterwards. We can dive into that further, obviously, yep, get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> but w- what I would say is um, whilst we're seeing a general move towards healthier foods, I would say if we look at the younger generation, the lovely Gen Z, they're not really prioritizing health versus other aspects of their food consumption. So things like experience, things like indulgence, having that you know, connection with their food and is is actually outweighing many of the health aspects. That being said, I think there are some sort of health adjacent benefits, which I think are definitely ticking boxes for Gen Z. Um, and actually, Alicia, you mentioned one earlier on, which is around energy. Um, so particularly given the lifestyle of Gen Z, um, you know, oftentimes they're working at university or at school maybe they're even starting their first job, they've got a pretty big and busy lifestyle and they're looking for different types of energy, which is really interesting. Um, You know, whether it's sort of about focus, you know, concentration, or whether it's about more of a relaxed energy, maybe a bit more of a slow burn. Um, I think energy in itself is a really interesting topic, which will really resonate with that Gen Z consumer. If I make, if I go to the other end of the spectrum and I look at the older generation uh, and make some very big generalizations, they're actually doing a pretty good job of focusing on health. They're prioritizing all the things that are really important uh, in terms of choices. They're prioritizing exercise um, and generally making 
good decisions when it comes to their health and wellness. Um, they're looking for other different aspects. They're probably looking for more um, tangible, functional benefits. So things like immunity, things like uh, cardiovascular health, things that are really top of mind when they're um, in their day-to-day life, looking for more of a preventative health benefit. And, and I think it presents a huge opportunity for food manufacturers and brands to really tap into that optimal um, benefit combination, really. It's not one magic benefit that consumers are seeking. Um, Again, putting your consumer hat on, you're looking for something that's going to provide you that overall benefit. Thinking about wellness, but prioritizing different elements uh, based on that life stage or, or lifestyle is really important. I think if I can just add to that, maybe I'll start off with the older generation and then work backwards to the Gen Zs. I think when when we look at Asia, um, we are basically living in an environment where the aging population is growing very rapidly. And that comes with, you know, the increased life expectancy that you're seeing, but also in terms of the improved quality of life from, you know, when we compare in the 80s, 90s, sorry, and, and, and way back ahead of that you know um so that being said i think to add on to what shelly shelly had shared in terms of the general trends it's the older consumers definitely especially with covid coming uh, having come and gone their focus is very much on how do i actually continue to keep healthy um and um, in terms of improving and supporting my immune system, keeping myself active, um, you know, improving my bone health and, and consuming foods that actually helps to address um, the immunity aspect, the bone health aspect, heart health, and even supporting your um, your moods. I think that all of that, it, it comes as a package. And, um Generally, in order for them, in order for the older older folk to to keep healthy and um, when I say keep healthy, keep active. Sorry, um, mm. they actually are looking for products that actually uh, helps to improve their muscle health. Even and if I can share an example, we have um, a comp- Fonterra who's a dairy company who actually um, came up with products in Asia that um, included more protein in their yogurts and they marketed it, marketed it as protein plus yogurt. And that in itself is now available in markets like Malaysia and giving that access to the consumer because besides preparing the foods at home, right, with your fresh produce and, and doing all of the necessary to prepare your big meals, a large part of it comes from um, prepackaged foods and companies are doing the necessary to help you fill that gap to give them the access to the healthier healthy alternatives not necessarily the healthier alternatives but expanding that spectrum to address some of these needs so at, like i said at the beginning of the session i, I they are listening to what consumers want um, similarly if i were to look at the gen z's and it's honestly they are a fascinating generation <laughs> i would say and i'm not do a whole topic on them. yeah and, and i'm not much older so but it's still something so interesting uh, to actually see how they respond to different types of foods that they consume and what they're looking for and i think they are quite emotional and impulsive when it comes to making food choices mm. they want it now they want to see the benefit now and if i were to i don't know um, something that's like something that's gonna boost my mood. I'm gonna have a little bit of a chocolate or um, uh, biscuits or cookies that helps to make me feel better. That is the, the kind of benefit. The gratification. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So I mean, and 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 that doesn't mean to say that they are not looking for longer term health benefits. It's just something that is of a lesser priority for them that not yeah. not saying that it's not quite they also look for you know um snacks that helps to incorporate the positives like glico for instance came up with a set of pokey sticks that came that included whole wheat and fiber in them and that's quite mm. interesting consumers actually like them and then the reach that it got because of social using social media was also quite good so again getting that message out there in a way that stands with the consumer, I guess maybe that's how uh, we can move forward and, and, and understand it. 
Yeah. Can I, can I just add one sort of idea that I'm going to build on from you, Sabera, which is um, a potential way in to talk about health, for, particularly for Gen Z, could be around an ingredient story. So we've seen some really good examples of brands who have highlighted healthier or better for you ingredients and really hung their hat on that. Um, again, the snacking category has done it really well, whether it's trading white rice for brown rice and using that within a snack product. Um, I think there are some easy-ish, and I say easy knowing how difficult these sort of changes are, but I, I think um, an ingredient story is, is definitely an interesting way in to talk about um, health and that can appeal to that Gen Z consumer. I think to Sabira's point, if you're promising certain, um, you know, benefits, then Gen Z are going to, they're going to they're assume gonna that they're going to. They're going to hold you to it, yeah. yeah. They're going to hold they you to it and yeah. they're going to they're be watching the clock. When's it kicking in? When am I getting more focused? <laughs> Whereas the ingredient story, you're right, there is a more long-term kind of aspect yeah. to yeah. that that I think consumers can get behind i really like that actually sorry i I think if i can just add one last point and it's it's just that it's no one food that can actually help you get that health benefit i think it's a combination of things and people sometimes tend to forget that it's like you for for gen z's like you said looking for that instant gratification if i'm going to be eating a box of cookies every single day just because of the fact that it's supposed to be higher in protein that's not discounting all of the other ingredients, all of the other nutrients that's coming alongside it. So portion control, having that mindful um, eating habits to facilitate a balanced uh, diet as well as a healthy lifestyle, active lifestyle, if you will, is really, really important because no one solution is Mm. the only solution. You need to do a combination of things to keep healthy. Wise words, Sabira, wise words. Thank you. (laughs) And I feel like on that note, that's a perfect place to wrap up. We've covered so much today and I just want to highlight three points that I've taken away because there have been so many different ones, but it really sounds like there's an opportunity there to to look at why people are snacking, Um, not just what they're snacking or what they're eating, what what they're snacking on, but why they're eating those things and then finding new ways to address that. If they're looking for focus and they're snacking for focus, then, you know, let's, let's, or for a mood boost, for example, if they're eating cookies for a mood boost, let's find new ways to, to give them that boost. Um, it's a long-term proposition to change consumer tastes. Like it, it's not just going to happen today or, or even tomorrow. So you've really got to build that into the plan. Um, and it really, the one big thing that I took away from this entire conversation is the choice. You've really got to provide that choice to consumers, um, take them along on that journey, but give them the options to be able to make those choices for themselves. Um, when they're looking for healthier options, give them the options to be able to choose. So thank you very much for listening. Um, the conversation does not end here. Head over to Mintel's LinkedIn to let us know what you think or visit Mintel.com to become a member of our free spotlight community. Make sure you subscribe to Mintel Little Conversation wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. And you can rate us or leave us a review. We would absolutely appreciate that too. Hope you'll join us for our next episode of Little Conversation. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.